a Podcast One production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. From an ARIA award-winning DJ to a Hollywood restaurateur, who would have thought? But Grant Smiley has been travelling the world and is now taking on America's best in the hospitality game. Grant now owns the Botanical Hospitality Group in Los Angeles, where his first venue, EPLP, has been kicking goals. It's had rave reviews and to boot, filled with celebrities, as you'd expect. He's on the verge of opening several new venues, and Grant has had to adapt quickly in his new hometown and keep his business empire going. Grant joins us to chat about his move from music to hospitality and living and working in the US, and what's next for this jack of all trades. Grant Smiley, how are you? Mate, it's great to speak with you. And I've got you at a reasonable time. I think, what is it, 5 p.m.? In Los Angeles, is that right? Yeah. Look, it's funny when you first move over here and you um, you get settled in. And, and I still had some some businesses in Australia, and you'd find that Friday afternoon was awesome because it was Saturday in Australia, and no one really annoyed you. But you're on your third Aperol spritz on a Sunday afternoon, and your email ignites Monday morning. Welcome back. It was terrible. All right. Well, absolutely. Let's let's do a little rewind. I mean, we'll touch on you. Um, your DJing because that is a stellar career. You grew up where? I was actually born in Eltham in Melbourne. Um, parents decided that the, their country lifestyle was a little bit more complementary to their, what they wanted to do. And so we also did grow up until, you know, the, the end of school. So I went to school at Xavier. So bounced around a little bit, but yeah, every weekend, Friday, as soon as Friday hit, we're up in the bush and then um, come back, you know, late Sunday night. And then towards the end, it was kind of, how quickly can we get these kids out of our house because we want to go move to the country, um, which I would certainly recommend for those who can because it was a great experience to go and um, spend a significant amount of time up in the, in uh, Mansfield and I loved it. I loved every bit of, of um, the country and it was, a you know, that formula of years of your life when you start to really connect with nature, which I think sometimes if you're just living in the city, you never really get that um, sense of what it's like out there. Yeah. Did you have a lucky childhood? I mean, you said it was it was a pleasure. What did it look like, you know? Are we talking about a boy in shorts and kicking a football or a different kind of kid? Yeah, no, oh, that, was, man, that was me, but, I mean, I wasn't very good at footy, if I'm being completely honest with you. I was a pretty good student, um, worked pretty hard at it, and I was, you know, into music, which doesn't necessarily make you the coolest bloke at school when you, when the blokes in the first 18 probably are the cool fellas at that time. It depends um, if you're playing guitar, drums, or in percussion, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. I was playing the sax. I'm not sure that was the cool one at the time, mate. Um, coming from Eltham 2 to Xavier College in Kew, I'd leave at 7.05 in the morning on the train and I'd be getting home at 5.30. Um, and then if you had training, it'd be 6.30 or 7. So it was a long day for, as a kid, as a student growing up and going and doing that. It was a bit of a slog, but my, my old man, Dave, was, was a panel beater um, who worked really hard with my mum, was working in the industry, a female in the... Linda, she was working in a... A pretty tough male-dominated industry, um, and they slaved their guts out to better put their kids through a, a decent school. So, 
you know, I was really mindful of making sure that at the end of all that, there'd be something to show for it. Um, that's why I'm sure they were horrified when I said, I'm going to go and be a bloody muso DJ. And they said, <laughs> hang about, you want to go to university and, and at least give us some semblance of a, a backup plan, please, sir. Um, but, which but did I they did. say that I, I to went, you? Did they say, no, you can be a DJ, but come on. Grant. Uh, they never didn't, not in so many ways, mate, but I think that the die was already cast by then. I mean, I was a young school kid, so, you know, by the time year 12 went around, I turned 17 in halfway through year 12, which is not the best, you know, kind of thing when everyone's turning 18 going out. So I did also look like I was turning 13 probably in year 12, which is, again, not the best outcome. So... One afternoon, I, sn- I snuck off into the city to the, the Melbourne Metro at the top of Burke Street there and um, met up with a couple of the, the owners, George and Sam, and you know, convinced them somehow that I was of legal tender and uh, would become a promoter in there just because I love the, the music and whatever else. And they used to give you a dollar a pass for everyone you write your initials on and um, you get a buck for everyone that came through. And I think the first weekend, apart from the fact that I met all the bouncers, so they remembered my youthful, very youthful face and didn't (laughs) check me for ID, thankfully. And I managed to get 100, 150 people through or something to the door, 150 bucks in year 12 on the first Saturday night out. And I went, I've crushed it. I've absolutely blown the door off this thing. And that was the the start of the end for me when it came to nightclubbing and whatever else, because it sort of, I enjoyed it. It was a great way to, to meet people and it was very social. And all of a sudden you can come from the, they're not the coolest kid in school to being a cool one because you had the, yeah. the keys to the, the greatest spot on the planet, what I thought at the time anyway. Um, but and how then did, I guess, can I just stop you there for a second? How did that idea cross a 17-year-old's mind or a 16-year-old's mind? Uh, because I, I don't think most of us would ever go, hang on a minute, I'm going to turn into a pseudo nightclub promoter. Yeah, no. I think we would probably just get trying to get a beer at the bar without yeah, showing our ID. Where, where did this idea come from? I've always been one to be somewhat entrepreneurial and if there was a problem that I couldn't resolve by then, that that was trying to get the Levi's 501 button heated up to a nuclear temperature to put it into the top of a passport stamp or something to try and get in. I wasn't very good as a forger. So I thought perhaps there's another way to, to resolve this and somehow make a living along the way through. So. If I didn't have that hustle, I was always, you know, if I was working at the panel shop with my old man, it was, you didn't take a break because one, you didn't want that nepotism. It's the old man's son. I wanted to show them that I was working harder than the rest of them. There was no lunch breaks for me. And similarly, that same approach went to everything I did. I think as we've, you know, moved throughout my career and, but at some point they just come to a natural conclusion um, for, for various different reasons. And the transition for me from, promoter thing was one of those ones that you know ultimately um enhancing someone else's business and perhaps as a musician there was I had better things I could offer and that step into DJing was I think I had a natural understanding of what worked with what from a you know musical signature key signatures and whatever else and that you know started to play out pretty well and then you realize I guess like a home cook goes to a chef at some point, you go to say, oh, I'm going to make my own music or I'm going to create my own recipe per se and let's be judged upon that. And I, that that step into, I guess, the production piece really went for another pivot at that point in time because it was, you know, you go from playing in the little leagues to the big leagues and funnily enough, my first record we put out went on to be an Aria winning record that's pretty 
unbelievable. And it's only until you don't win a few in a row after that that you realise they're pretty hard to do. <laughs> what I want to know, though, and we just fast-forwarded to like an aria there, which is amazing and we can go back to it, but there's a process going on in your head where you've gone from teenage kid playing the sax and a bit, bit of bad footy at school and not giving us too much detail, you've come up with this revolutionary idea, entrepreneurial idea, to go clip the tickets at a nightclub. When you say love for music, where does it start? Like, did you fall in love with the beat? Did you fall in love with the scene? Like, what was it that got you fired up about this thing? Yeah, good questions, mate. Um, for me, the first time I went out was a, you know, a pretty amazing experience. But like, like stepping back a bit, I think when you learn an instrument for whatever reason, you've got to really commit to it. Um, and it either resonates or it doesn't. I mean, if you sit there and said you play the drums, play the guitar, play anything, they're bloody hard, you know. You've got to continue to, to pursue it. And, and, and I think I was in a band at school, so we had a, a competitive stage band. Really sexy stuff, mate, really sexy stuff. But we got to travel around and compete around Australia and got that sort of real sense of camaraderie as you get to know your, your peers and... We were really competitive and really tried to, to to make our mark. I remember we won this competition in Mount Gambier for all all schools, and we were sort of we thought it was it was a good thing at the time. We even like designed the the uniforms, do all the jazz, and you know really um, go for it. And I think that that sort of love of music was for me. I just didn't know if that was going to be. I was I thought I was going to be a music school teacher or something along those lines, and. Oh, look, you've really got to love kids and music, I think, to do that. Um, that's Would you a- be teaching idiots like me? I mean, I did music <laughs> uh, for six or seven years at school. I hated it. I remember the poor music teacher. I'd be just looking out at the sports field. Can't tell now, fat chef. But, you know, I just remember the last place I wanted to be was trying to strum on a guitar and you'd end up playing the tambourine. Yeah, I feel you. I guess, though, then you stand up and when you're playing a sax solo or something and you have to stand up and that nervous, you've got that sweaty armpits because you don't want to duff it and you've got a, a full room and that kind of confidence that to be able to do those kind of outcomes gives you a lot of confidence in other parts of your lifestyle. And fast forwarding to what that looks like in a band environment to when you finally get the opportunity to make your own music they don't stand, get stand up and get 20,000 people singing back at you or, or you know, giving you a clapping standing ovation if you're your local CPA who's just saved Johnny 50 bucks on his, on his tax return. You know, the whole office doesn't really give you that instant gratification kind of thing. And I think that music does that and it allows you to feel really great about something you've done. So um, that got you hooked? Oh, for sure. I used to love, you know, when you had that, that moment in the sunshine when you were you know, you'd stand up to your solo. I was like, that's my spot. Get out of the way, you know? And not that you ever wanted to be up. Look, I can't sing, so don't don't ever think that's going to happen. But knowing that you can in some way, you know, be the master of your own future, and that's only as good as writing a single record. But for me, it was either when you're a DJ playing other people's records, doesn't have that same weight. You're not an authority in the space if you're not making it yourself. And I think that then you can actually have an informed opinion and people will listen. But if you're just a, a jukebox playing other stuff, not that there's anything wrong with that, and there's plenty of people who do that really well, but for me, it was never enough. It was not good enough to sort of just be a participant. I had to sort of, I met a guy called um, Ivan Goff, who was a fantastic producer. He'd already had you know 15 years of expertise. And for him to even 
allow me to, you know, somehow live under his wing and for him to guide me in through that process was unbelievable as a, as a young bloke trying to cut his teeth that someone who, you know, it'd be like a, as a chef, Gary, you had a, a, you saw someone coming through that you'd loved and you thought, um, this guy's got, got what it takes. I'm going to at least give him some of my time and where that goes, who knows? But I was very, very lucky to have met him and it certainly changed the, the progression of what I could do very quickly by meeting you know, him along the way. So can you describe the feeling of that creative process, maybe the first or the most successful time that you remember, I don't know, mixing something in the studio or working under him or with him? Sure. I mean, look, one of the critical things I think about producing is to have an opinion and it may or be right or wrong. It doesn't really matter, but we can often sit there and think we've created the the best thing since sliced bread and you wake up the next morning and go, what was I thinking? That was awful. But, you know, when you make your first record, I remember you'd be driving home in my Mazda 626 and um, have the, the, probably was a CD mate, no, it wasn't even a CD, probably an MP3 player plugged into the to the machine and, and you'd play it at full blast all the way home thinking, what an amazing, amazing thing you've done. Um, and I had the benefit then of being able to go to a club and play it that same day and you made it, you felt pretty excited about it, but pretty quickly people vote with their feet on the dance floor and as much as I wanted to keep people there, you could sit there and very, you had to tell instantly whether this thing was connecting or whether it wasn't and then you'd have the ability to go back the next day to your studio and give it a tweak Um, and sometimes you could throw as much energy at a track as you'd like and it just wouldn't make it and then other times you'd find that little slice of magic and that could come from a vocalist that come in or you'd, you know, any of those kind of things. It's, we probably did 50, 100 records together and, you know, you're only really remembered for a handful of them. But each time I always had the, I guess, thought process that if even one other person loved it, then that was probably good enough for me to have warranted spending the time on it. And how good did it feel to go from that that start, I mean, that you've described, and it gives you an inkling, it gives you a window into you, which is lovely as a man, because obviously you can't stop yourself. That's where it comes from. Playing some of the biggest venues on the club circuit or in the world. I mean, what sort of audiences were you playing in front of at the height of your career? Oh, mate, we, I mean, I did the AFL grand final. So that was, you know, before the, the kickoff, that was pretty amazing, walking out to the middle of the G going, I'm playing the grand final, that's ridiculous. Um, what year was the Maya that? Music Bowl, uh, mate. That was in uh, 2014, right? Um, and the Cats came out and gave. I, was, I think it was the Cats and Port, maybe. And I think they just absolutely gave them a pantsing, like ridiculous. And Jet were playing with this at the time, and they had a bit of an issue with their sound. Thankfully, not their, their sound, not mine. And we, I mean, the Maya Music Bowl was 20,000, 30,000 a time playing, you know, Greek Islands, Mykonos was always a, a favourite. And then, like, you know, the Love Parade in Berlin was me and people went to that thing, you know. It's just staggering some of the, the size of the audiences that, that really enjoyed your music. And I think they're all as equally as good as each other. It was just more when you went because they loved a particular song and if you had, you know, 20,000 people singing it back at you, it's... You know, you can't describe it. It makes you want to go and make music, you know. It's, it's, it makes it worthwhile. Were you living a different kind of life back then to now? I mean, when you think back on it, a bit like when you said you didn't realise how amazing that aria was 
until you haven't won one since. Do you know what I mean? For sure, mate. What was that life like? I mean, now we've got we've got Pacha and Ibiza and all this in our heads and going, what was he doing? You were living yeah. the life. Uh, why, why aren't I back there? Because <laughs> <laughs> we all move on, don't we? we but what, what we was that? What did that feel like? What did that look like? Come on, tease us a little bit. Oh, mate, there's plenty of hangovers. There's plenty of hangovers. I mean, the thing was, it was a little bit like, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but it was like a Congo line. Like it was that airport disco <laughs> hotel kind of, you know, vibe. Because I would literally be have a schedule that was planned out months in advance and you'd be saying, here's your flight itinerary, here we're going, here we're going there. I missed a flight once and you're sitting there, one of the Swedish house mafia guys had a, had a couple of big tracks that was like, well, he's got a jet going here so you can catch it. He hitch a ride on his jet to, and you'll pick up there and then you'll grab one with Tiesta and you'll grab on his plane to go here and whatever else. I mean, it's pretty kind of hedonistic existence when you're running around with lots of, you know, young women, young men running around having the time of their lives, um, thinking you're the bee's knees because you're the, the main attraction and, you know, you'd give them four or five hours of your time and it, and you'd be gone. You know, it was as simple as that. Um, and it, but look, what an amazing time to be alive. And I'm not going to try and hide the fact that it was a tremendous um, period of time. But like all things, you know, you never went to your friend's birthdays. You never went to the wedding of your buddy. And if you were at home on a Friday night, you're a loser because you didn't have yeah, a Yeah, but gig. hang on. So, those people, you know, we're, we're at home going, where's Grant? Oh, as usual. <laughs> He's in Ibiza, LA, Mykonos, whatever. That's, I'm just, I've just got to drag you back into it because you just said you whispered under there, you said Tiesto. Is it Tiesto? He's one of the biggest DJs. And so, yeah. you know, I've got this random, um, I love all sorts of music, but I've got this random thing through the late 80s, 90s of getting into trance. So it went from people are going, what? Dave's going, what? You know, so it became, I, you know, and I still listen to quite a bit of um, euphoric trance and stuff like that. So I've got Ali, Ali and Feeler and, you know, jo, uh, John Callahan and, you know, all these, old, all these old DJs actually. And my wife goes, turn that shit off, seriously. Because it's, you know. <laughs> so when you say things like that, I'm like, oh, my God. And the, cha the changing in sounds, like when those guys, when you were talking about that trance, was, was enormous. Um, and it's having a bit of a renaissance period at the moment. But everything's kind of cyclical. I mean, rock and roll will be back. We're, you know, we can't just continue to have these, you know, one-dimensional stuff that we're hearing at the moment it's very the thing that i found about music and this will never happen ever again was that when you first made a record and you wanted to sell it what would happen is i'd make it i'd play it down the phone to someone or would make a tape would send it off to a to an exec and they'd say yes or no and funnily enough how the first flaunted our first big record got made was went to sydney played it to a couple of people and they said nah not interested not going to work out so I went back to Ivan, I said, mate, well, we've got opportunities here. One, it's a turkey, we don't worry about it. Or two, we can set up our own record label and fund the pressing of the vinyl ourselves and the distribution and the marketing and the PR. And I'm like, I'll do the artwork, we'll sort of see what happens that way. And at least then we're the master of our own you know, outcome. And if this doesn't work, well then I've, I've done the cool artwork, I've given it to the right people, we've played it on radio, we've done all this stuff, which, you know, all the other record labels would have done was the most basic of packages anyway and serviced it to a few people and said, here you go, here's this record by this deal from Melbourne. So what we did is we came back, did all the artwork, did all, all the business, but 
you'd have to then sit there and play it down the phone to someone say, hey, do you think you're gonna buy this? And the test pressing is gonna cost two grand. So you're like, oh, I hope people are gonna like it because if I'm not, I'm just blown up a couple of grand. But the process of the, how many ears were on this track and I believe in it, the guy down the phone is, I'll buy it. Someone else, I'm gonna buy it. Then you play it to the promo team saying, do you think this is gonna get away? Sure. You've had four or five or six people's ears on it by the time you've even got to the point where it's a go, no, go for launch because all of a sudden someone's spending money. Now you've got this kind of, which is great too, that you're getting this, you know, any Ableton or Logic or any of these kind of programs you can make music on these days means that you can just put it out. There's no vetting around it and often getting that cut through just given the quantity of music that's being produced is, is very challenging. And I think that back when we first started making it, there was a lot of, I guess, the, the distillation process around what made the cut was far more significant because it was it was more costly. But that's not to say that, you know, I think that today if I was to, I was funny, I was talking to Monty, our, our chef for one of our new projects, and his kids are looking to get into music. And he said, what do I do? I said, mate, just download this thing, let them have a play. And, you know, if, who knows? They could be the next Justin Bieber. Who do I, who do I know? You know, like, have a go. And I think that's the, the beauty of it. No one should listen to anyone else's rules. And just out of curiosity, flaunt it. So you put your own money in, you did the Grant Smiley thing and you, yep. you got it all done. Yep. It was a massive hit. Yeah, we sold 250,000 copies in Oz and spent the longest in the top 10 Australian charts history. So not bad. Don't know how that happened, mate. <laughs> so the 2,000 bucks it cost to press that bit of music was worth it. It was, mate. And I think that off the back of that, hopefully a few of my mates decided to start their own labels too and they're their own things. But you know, as we sort of touched on earlier, I think you, you can, there's no guarantee that any project's a, a good one, but I think often when no's the first answer you get, you don't, you know, you can prove people wrong. The worst thing you're gonna be doing is swimming upstream. And, you know, sometimes you get a lucky break and, but if you don't have a go, then you're never gonna know. Yeah, we'll leave a bit of your DJing behind, but I have to know what was your, when you look back on it as a stellar career, what was your favorite moment, do you think? Look. I, look, I don't say it's my favourite moment, but it's probably the one for, I'll say it in two parts. My parents, I know when you come and if you stood on stage and you collect an RR award, it's probably justification for them of the stupid decisions you made along the way. And they'll, they'll go, look at him, he's done all right, my boy, you know, and they can, and it sits on their on their shelf back in the, at their house now and it's, you know, doorstop for me, but, you know, for them, <laughs> it's a really important moment. Um, but... Look, I think when you make your, I played at this um, club in Mykonos called Paradise and we played with a couple of, you know, big French DJs and when you, you realise, I think I've made it, you know, it was kind of a 23, 24 year old bloke standing in a foreign island with a full, you know, venue just to come and see you play and I thought that's, this is pretty cool. You know, I'm not not playing in Melbourne anymore um, and we can, we can cut our teeth internationally and, and still get it to stand up. It was, it was a lot of fun. Sounds absolutely fantastic. I just got all dreamy there for a minute. I just went, 24, <laughs> what was I doing? Oh, yeah, that's right. I looked bleary-eyed. Uh, I looked about 50 and I was working about 12 hours a day in the kitchen. What a shit idea that was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I love it. I reckon I could talk for... We could talk for a, a long time about your DJing career. But the reason we wanted to get you on, because this podcast is called A Plate to Call Home and it's about food. 
I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. I remember Justine May, who is a, a mutual friend. She's my agent. Yep. And um, she said, oh, there's a guy in LA. Um, you might know him. Um, Grant Smiley, he's a DJ. He's opening a restaurant. And I just went, I remember specifically at the time going, that's weird. Why would you do that? <laughs> and I just, it, I just discounted it. And then I think, uh, wind forward, I can't remember when we came to EPLP. It was a number of years ago now. And I just went, my God, he did this well. So it's strange. I know it's a strange thing to tell you, but I just thought at the time, why would a, would a successful DJ with a different kind of life, and you've just described it and how you got there, why the hell would you open a restaurant? Or a, a restaurant and a bar? Because it's more than a restaurant, isn't it? Yeah, look, it is. It's, you know, multi-venue, I think. But if you want to try and connect, and this is a really terrible analogy, but how, maybe it'll go a little bit of the way. When I was sort of traveling the world, one thing you did get to do was have some awesome dining experiences all around the world. And often the guys that were on the pans, they'd say, I'm gonna come later on and, and see the show. And because they wouldn't be finishing till you know midnight, one o'clock, whatever else. And in Europe especially, I wasn't even starting till two o'clock. So those guys were like, no worries, I'll put you on the door, happy days. So I started to get to know a lot of the, the chefs from around the world and just love for the love of food more than anything. And um, I started in Melbourne, I had a little bar, I still have got a little bar in the middle of the Yarra River called Ponyfish Island, and that came about from a guy called Jerome Barazio, who's got a, a festival called Laneway there, and he had a, a bunch of bars in, in town, uh, and that sort of got me thinking about hospitality and really understanding what it was. But you know, that was more of a bar thing. I think as you get into the restaurant game, you realise that bars are bars and restaurants are restaurants, and they're completely different beasts. Um, but I also had a, a really good friend and mentor, Salvatore Malatesta from St. Ali in Melbourne. Um, and he and I decided to do a little cafe at the Melbourne Recital Centre and he sort of was showing me the ropes around that particular hospitality piece. And he had a guy working for him at the time called Ben Cooper, who went on to be the chef of Chin Chin, as you well know. Yeah. So, I got on really well with Benny and we, we spent a bunch of time together and he was sort of telling me about, you know, how to go about it. And look, I had no illusions. I certainly wasn't going to be the guy in the pans, but I found that the process between the creative process anyway, and to get to your point about LA, which we'll jump to in a second, but restaurants and music, yeah, I know they're completely different, but what I find is the same is I want to create something. As a, as a musician, it was like, oh, I've got to get this idea out. I've got to create this track and it might start with the engine room of the beats and then it gets the, the vocals and however you choose to build it. With a restaurant, similarly, there's so many creative parts of the process and that can be, okay, what are, what's going to go on the menu? And then you're thinking, you're starting with the cuisine and that might be then, that might be the impetus to say, well, then this color palette needs to marry with that because if it's doing an Italian, we've got to go reds, greens, whites, blacks, da da da. And then there's no rules, but ten, generally that tends to happen. And that informs the next process, which is 
what's the art going to look like? What's the brand called? What's all this? And this was all the stuff that I really enjoy um, when you can start to sort of take what is an idea and bring it to fruition. And how did I end up in LA? Well, I had a buddy from school, funnily enough, Dave Combies, and he was in the year below me. He was out here in LA um, doing some real estate deals and I would just come back from the Winter Music Conference in Miami and he said, do you want to catch up for a beer? I said, sure bud, let's have a beer and we did. And he said, I want to show you this rooftop spot in West Hollywood that you, you know, maybe we can just do something. I said, I don't know, what are we doing? But we caught up for that beer and little did we know that within, a, you know, two years later, we'd have a, a, a brand new venue that we'd be doing. And in all my naivety, I thought I could still bounce back and forth between Australia and the rest of the world and be somewhat hands-on, hands-off. But coming to America and learning the nuances of the, the trade and everything else and the differences in laws and labour and everything else was, you know, impossible to continue two things. So my hand was forced in the, you know, I guess the full transition to hospitality, but not one in that I would ever take back. But um, that's how I ended up here. And then, you know, the building of it and opening of it, that's a separate conversation of a whole bunch of growing pains. <laughs> now, I want to have that conversation because it makes sense. And, you know, over the years, we all have, if we've been in business, you always meet someone for a beer and let's chew the fat and they've always got an idea or you've got an idea. You looked at this and went, yeah, it's going to be a great little bar, probably not going to take a huge amount of effort. I'm sure, you know, your first thoughts were, I can do all this, yeah? So that's what it started off as, in all honesty. It was going to be a cool project, bar. Someone else was probably going to pitch in and do most of the work and you were going to carry on travelling backwards and forwards. Yeah, and that was the, that was the idea. Um, there's not many rooftop bars in, in LA for whatever reason, given they've got their, you know, 300 days of sunshine, yet they... Don't do it. But as you, as we quickly found out, that's, that's for good reason because they're very difficult to permit. But in saying all of that, we did do this deal and we managed to get through the process. I think the Australian charm somehow um, hoodwinked the local West Hollywoodites into thinking we we're, you know, a bunch of reputable characters, which we are. But, you know, I think that's it's a challenge because once it gets attached to a building, even if we ended up selling that business, that usage is attached to that, that building for life. So hence their reticence to want to sort of rubber stamp everything that comes through their doors. And I'm sure they've been burnt before. We had to sort of figure out, okay, so this big spot and look, the rent's not small, mate. We're talking about a, you know, a 10,000 square foot or a thousand square meter, you know, venue that's sort of got a restaurant space of 142 and then a rooftop that we can put 250, 300 on. Plus then we've now added a rooftop cinema for another sort of, you know, a couple of hundred. So you need, with that needs to come a certain amount of firepower and for us we decided I rang up a couple of people back home and said is there anyone we should be talking to from a culinary perspective that could anchor this who might be interested so to put it in perspective for a minute now you're seriously in your boots in and all and you realize that you've got to turn this into a serious concern because you're not talking about just a, a rooftop bar that you can dilly dally about in you you've got big rent uh, big expenses lots of staff and a lot on the line yeah it's kind of it's kind of project that sends people down, doesn't it? Oh man! If you get it wrong, if I could, I'll, I'll tell you that story. I will tell you that story in a minute. Please. But um, <laughs> with with that, I mean, look, we were you know two and a half million bucks US at the time. It's nothing to be sneezed at. Um, and ringing it like at first you've got to. Well, Dave and I put our our money in first and signed on the dotted line. Then you're scrambling around madly for partners to go and join you in the business. 
then the culinary piece was Louis Tigram was you know the Josephine Pignolet Young Chef of the Year in 2014 so I said I rang him immediately and said perhaps you're the guy that likes basketball so I hear and let's get you over here and get you to a Lakers game or a Clippers game pretty quickly and see if this floats your boat which fortunately for us it did and then we built a couple of other key personnel around the site we got a an architecture group out of Melbourne called Projects of Imagination who um, had done Chin Chin uh, for Chris and they'd done Super Normal for Andrew among, among many other successful Australian hospitality venues and we thought perhaps this Australian DNA of hospitality hasn't been seen in California rather than getting a Californian architect let's do that which is great because we're talking centimetres and they talk inches and now you've got to translate it to builders and <laughs> yeah yeah it's great it's really good no site visits it's perfect Gary it's the best way you want to run a business over here <laughs> so why doesn't the bar click into the wall there like what's going on there yeah and the disabled code you're talking about in Australia is not the one that's over here that's perfect I love it you know um <laughs> But look, you navigate those things and look, I do think that the outcome was really significant because it did look different and I think that's important. So we managed to get this open in May of 2015. So it's just ticked over five years that we've been open. Congratulations. Thanks, mate. No, no mean feat as anyone who's owned a restaurant would know. No, it's, it's fantastic. I certainly know that when, I think, I don't know if Matt was there, but George and I came. I know that. Matt did um, come, yeah. And I think we were there for yep. – he did, didn't he? And we were there for MasterChef. And what I was most impressed about was it felt like a secret, but everybody knew about it. It was – and the like you say, the design, it felt very Melbourne. It's over multi-levels. And, of course, when you hit the rooftop, you saying the fact that there's not many rooftop bars or there weren't in LA is remarkable because that, that was the space, obviously, that captured everybody's imagination because it – it felt, you felt a million bucks up there. It is. You know, yeah. it's like that little moment where you feel like, like you should do when you go to a restaurant or a great bar, you feel like you're, you're the kingpin. And I remember sitting up there watching all these beautiful people and going, what a place. That's how it felt. So whatever you, you, you intended, you did a brilliant job and you captured the local uh, kind of celebrity and, and local foodie attention, didn't you? We did. I mean, I think some of it was by luck, some of it wasn't otherwise. I mean, look, we've... Some of the codes are pretty funny. We've got, a, we've got a fire pit on the rooftop. We actually had two of them. We have one currently, but we're about to remove that. But we had two. I think it was week five. Dave and I, it was our first Thursday. We had the LA Times food editor downstairs having their first decent big review we we're going to get. And uh, Ruby Rose, Aussie actress, was in with me having a drink on the rooftop. And all of a sudden, Dave comes over to me and says, mate, we're on fire. I said, yeah, no, we are. He goes, no, mate, we're on fire. <laughs> and uh, this dodgy fire pit on the rooftop. All of a sudden we had the LAP, uh, LA fire department down there with chainsaws tearing the brand new roof apart, putting out, dousing this fire, which did luckily go out. Um, and we were standing at the end of the bar at five in the morning downstairs looking at each other on the no. three fingers of scotch saying that was nearly the quickest two million bucks down the drain you've ever spent. But it can, you know, that's the, that's the restaurateur's worst nightmare, flu, flu fire or fire after all the hard work. And you, you read about it fairly frequently. I just love that bit where, who was it, Dave, comes up and goes, we're on fire. And you, you feel like going, F yeah, we're on fire. I love that. And then he goes, no, no, no. We're really on fire. You must have, the, the blood must have drained from your face. It did, but I rang my builder and did the same thing to him. I go, mate, we're on fire. He goes, good on you. I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> it was not a good night, I, I can tell it. you. But you look back with some, you know, you, you can only laugh. But um, like you say, you could have, that would have been it, wouldn't it? 
beginning and the end of the, the dream. That would have been, yeah, it. been How it. did the review go, just out of curiosity? Uh, she didn't like it. Okay, like well, it. there you go. So stuff her because uh, you've done brilliantly well and everybody loves the fact that it's busy and noisy. Isn't it funny how I always remember opening Phoenix and we got an instant flush of people and then that, you know, as, as you get into the real business, we used to have people that would come in on certain nights because they loved the fact that it had a certain feel and then it got busier and busier again and they went away because they didn't like it because it was too noisy or it was too busy. or it was, And you go, it's a restaurant. It's strange, isn't it? It is. They also have this thing with real estate in America where they love a booth, you know. So Australians, we like to just cram them in, get a lot of energy into a room. And that's the kind of environment that I like to eat in, an energetic kind of bustling kind of space where, you, you know, you're not, no one's listening to any other people's conversations, just having a good time. Whereas Americans like that privacy of, this is my patch of real estate. And, you know, over time we've had to sort of slowly adapt and pivot in the restaurant to accommodate a bit more of that. Last year we put some more banquets and booting in and trying to create those intimate mo- moments that they're sort of looking for. And because if you don't sort of adapt to what the market conditions are, you're just on a hiding to nothing at the end of the day. Um, just because we like it in, in Australia doesn't mean that the Yanks do. And so I'm not going to go and fight it. I'm just going to do it better, but do it our way, but still meet them. Otherwise, we're going to, you know, you're not busy. In all honesty, then, what do you think actually captured everybody's attention? Because, I mean, you do get the celebrity A-list. I mean, you know, we know that the Kardashians or the the Hemsworths or, you know, people are just dropping in and being seen and it's a cool place to be. What caught their attention, do you think? A lot of the um, Americans have that, again, back to real estate. We'd be like, you have to go on, it's the old bottles and models kind of thing, right? So you got to spend two grand, come down here, you got a guaranteed spot. Well, we just decided that let's let the environment and the atmosphere and design it for sort of more social collision. So you might meet people out, like that old tradition of a bar. You go to a bar or you go to a pub in Melbourne, you want to go out and speak to people, hang out to people. And I think that laid back approach to it sort of really went a long way for us to sort of people can come often and really get to enjoy it for what it was. And it's that kind of, even the, the chef's table when you can come and sit at a, a pass and really just sit there and have that conversation with a chef, like that that doesn't really exist too often in America. So we just want to make it very inclusive, very welcoming the whole time. But that's not to say that, you know, Matt Damon comes in for his birthday and he wants to have a private spot on the roof. We'll happily do that. But I'm also not going to allow his whole entourage of idiots to hang around him and say, you can't come up here and take have photos taken. It's like, well, go somewhere else, pal. Like, you know, I'm sure I'll make sure you get a, a first line in the bathroom to go and make sure no one's bothering you while you're doing that. But other than that, you're just part of the, the scene. And I think people then can feel like they can hang out with them or not hang out you know, directly with them, but feel like they're a part of that whole thing. And it just makes for a really good matrix of, of people and the design and obviously our location. I think that that's because there's not many rooftops, because there's not the space around us, it does give you a bit of natural insulation in, in relation to, you know, I guess the competition and being staying relevant and staying present. Um, but that's not to say that while we we're closed for, you know, months and months for, during the, the COVID crisis, we spent, Dave and I, back on the, on the tools, sanding down the deck, pivoting, flipping the floorboards and, you know, renovating the space so when you come back that it looks pretty as a picture because, you know, the competition is going to be even more um, than ever before. So we've got to really take that time to, to make it a better and sustainable business. 
I do want to just before we leave EPLP and talk about what you're doing in the future, you must have a little bit of celebrity goss you can give us. <laughs> There's something well, that happened on that rooftop that we need to talk about. There must be. There's been so many, mate. There's so many. I'll tell you what. Well, just give us one little juicy piece of fruit, you know? Well, I can tell you that Liam Hemsworth's drink of choice is tequila and if you give too many to him, you may have to pick him up off the floor. Just saying. He's a big man too. That takes a couple of people. Does. That's a workout in it itself. Is, but look, at the same time, isn't everyone entitled to let their hair down? And being a good Aussie bloke, I thought you might as well have a go, son. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody, you know, people put you on a pedestal. We put people like Liam Hemsworth on a pedestal, so it's good to know. <laughs> so come on, let's talk about future projects because you've got some big things happening. And I know that um, the elephant in the room is, you know, COVID-19. I mean, this is just... I'm not over it at all. I'm more fascinated about what's going to happen in our industry because no one knows. We're all trying to predict it, but no one knows what's going to happen to this thing. But if we kind of put that to one side for a second, what's the exciting stuff that's happening? Because you've got Monty Kaludovic over in LA, haven't you? And his wife. Yeah, Jackie, yep. Um, Jackie, which is, I mean, you've got two of the biggest kind of, you know, culinary hitters on the Australian food scene as far as I'm concerned. Amazing. Amazing talent um, and wonderful people too. No, no ego. Um, yes, challenging times. We've got a, a, a new cafe um, business called Strings of Life, which is finished. I suppose to open in the week that the, uh, I guess, the COVID crisis. We shut down here on March the 16th, so we're due to open on the 17th. So it's just been sitting there idly. Frustration, sure. Um, have, again, have you sort of been thinking about ways to pivot and do all these other things? But sometimes... Look, if, you, if it's a brand new brand, people need to come and touch it, feel it, experience it. So do any takeaway or to-go kind of items is it feels to me a bit premature. We're just going to sort of let the, the market come back. And a cafe business is one that can sustain itself, you know, if it only had to have a, a reduced capacity. The bigger project we're working on, which will was, was scheduled to open in, in sort of September of this year, but that's to sort of, you know, I would suspect that that is maybe it's a later this year or, you know, let's just wait and see what happens with the industry as, a, as an overall position, um, particularly in California, which has been very heavily impacted by this as an industry. But very exciting though, we've got a project called Grandmaster Recorders, which is what Monty and Jackie are here for. Funnily enough, there seems to be this DNA of music keeps on coming through my venues. So we went and saw this building, Grandmaster Recorders, recording studio from 71 to 2016. Bowie, Blondie, Chili Peppers, Stevie Wonder, you know, Stevie Nicks, you name it, they've all recorded in this spot. Um, and I looked into this room and went, ah, oh, shit, we're doing it, aren't we? Anyway, <laughs> just, it's in, the, it's in the heart of Hollywood. Yeah. There's an old warehouse at the back of it, which is where the restaurant space will be, where Motley Crue used to throw free parties. And then in the front part of the studio recording space, we're now keeping somewhat of the, I'm putting a live performance spot back in there, but equally having now the where the mixing desk was, it's a new kind of mixing desk. Maybe it's just mixing tequila, but it's in the exact same position. We're just sort of rehabbing all that sort of stuff. And then we decided to put more steel than the Sydney Harbour Bridge into the rooftops and we can now accommodate 450 plus looking straight up at the Hollywood sign. And, you know, given the talent of Monty and Jackie, and I think that then the, the often with a venue, we're sitting there saying, you know, what's the name of the venue? What does it mean? And wrapping some 
bullshit, excuse my French, around this texture of what it means to come to whatever. Well, this particular building is Grandmaster Recorders, always has been and always will be, where somehow we've inherited this rich her heritage that's hard to replicate, but now it's our job to maintain and somehow continue that conversation as it moves into its new iteration. That sounds like a, it's a, you know, this is where it all comes together for you then really, isn't it? It's a lot on the line. Yeah, the challenge for everyone is now just trying to figure out how to put that energy back into a space. Um, let's, let's put everyone's going to get rich out to the side for a second, but I do think that it's going to be that we will get through it. People still want to be interactive with each other. I certainly am not excited about opening a venue at 30 to 50% capacity. I just don't think it's going to get the momentum and energy um, that you want to have. But look, we're still in construction, so that's okay. We've got time on our side. Um, but in the short term, we're all going to do what we need to do to get by. But I think there's nothing better than getting back to that energy in a room. And if that can't come back for whatever reason, then there won't be a lot of people in restaurants game anymore because it's just too critically important. I mean, I think that the fine diners, sure, happy days, you can go and you can do that, but it's not something you want to do every day. You know, I find I, I love going to the occasional degustation and, and having a really exceptional dining moment, but it's two to three times a year for me, you know? Yeah, it's maybe um, less for me because, you know, I think essentially as I've got older, what's really important, heart in food, Love the sp I love a space. I love how a, a place feels. You know, the reason I asked you about uh, LPEP was the fact that if a place has got a vibe, it's often the X factor. Like you ask an owner often, what, how did you do this? They go, I don't know. It just, you know, we had the idea, but it just went in a direction that I never expected. So I go out for that. I really, I think that's part of the experience. I think most people do. And I think if we're not able to do it the way we did, it's just going to be such a massive hole in our lives. I think it's going to be very difficult to adapt to. I think it'll go back to normal. I'm hoping, hoping to God that it's going to go back to, to normal. I'm thinking it's going to go back to normal, mate. I'm in your corner. We're going to get back to normal. Um, and I think that what will happen, though, I think the, the other cumulative effect out of this is, um, and this, this just comes down to spending if people haven't got as much money. And you, I think you made a really good point about snacks because they're my favourite thing in the world too. And... If you, you can often go and spend nearly as much on snacks as a complete meal because over the course of that second or third glass of wine, Gary, we're all of a sudden saying, maybe another snack. And I think they're the tastiest parts of it. There's been so much thought and they're so pretty and the presentation's fantastic. And those kind of, that's the conversational kind of dining that I really, really look forward to. Um, and it's one that has to be done shared. I mean, you can sit at a bar and have a snack. Of course you can but it's always better with a friend. I love the idea, a bit like the tequila. I like, you know, when you order a shot, I go with the snacks, I go, we'll do another one of those. <laughs> and then maybe you do it, you go, and we'll do another one. Thank you very much. So I'd be the Gary Megan, well, the Liam Hemsworth equivalent of lying on the floor comatose on snacks rather than tequila. Yeah, yeah comatose, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm all, and you know, it's not it's not that late. What time is it? It's 11.03 and, and now the juices are flowing. I'm getting hungry. I'm thinking of snacks. One last thing. What do you reckon the secret to your success is? I, I was listening to a little chat you had with uh, George Conbaris the other day and um, you said you get up at five o'clock every day regardless of what time you go to bed. And I went, oh, that makes sense. It's kind of a familiar story. But from our whole chat from the start to the finish, from when you're at school to now, there's a certain drive, isn't there? Where does that where does that come from? How do you 
how do you keep doing that? Where does the inspiration come from? I think it's just a continual trying to create more. I don't know. I've always never sort of had accepted that enough was enough. Um, And that's just more from a creative process. I think that you get more out of the day. For me, my favorite part of the day is that 5 a.m. You get up, there's no one around to me versus myself. I'll just go for a walk or I'll go to the gym, whatever else. And then my day starts, but I get a lot of clarity of thought around that. Um, I've had the, the joy of working with some people that are far more talented in their craft than I. And that's the best part of being, you know, a restaurateur rather than a chef is that I can sit there and put, all I can do is offer a carrot to someone if they say they would like to work with us, then happy days. But then I get the benefit of not only enjoying their company, but their their culinary skills. And then I can hopefully translate that into bums on seats and people through the door and help them progress themselves. But that vicariously translates to me that that hopefully creates a new opportunity for us as, as a group and for me personally. And that just means that I'm only limited by my imagination on my time. So look, should the world come crashing down, you know, some people have the ability to sit there and brush off the dirt and say, well, you know, can I go again? And for some, it's too hard. But I think that, you know, every time there's been adversity, it's just two steps back, we'll, we'll push on and we'll, we'll keep moving forward because to, to do anything otherwise would be not my nature, put it that way. So um, I like to have challenges with life surrounded by them. We're in the midst of one right now, but we'll, I think I'm a glass half full kind of guy. We'll get through together because I know that even if others can't make it through the other side, I back my team. And I, I think that if we're smart, we, we think about everything every day, probably too much. Um, and hopefully we're prepared more than anywhere else to, to be successful on the other side, whatever that looks like. And I think that's the way I approach whatever I do. Brilliant stuff. I feel inspired now. I'm going to take on my day uh, like, a, like a new Gary. One tequila at a time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for spending a bit of time with us and um, best of luck with the projects. And, of course, as soon as the, uh, the international borders open up, we will come over and uh, enjoy some snacks together, I hope. I look forward to it, my friend. You can pick me up off the floor at the end of the night. <laughs> <laughs> Done. That's a promise. <laughs> Great stuff, Grant. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure. And now time for my tips and tricks. And I said it a couple of times in that interview, but I love snacks. I love going to a bar and ordering lots of little tasty things, crunchy things, got to have texture. And when I think about snacks, there is nothing better than toast. And I'm not talking about toast with butter on, but I'm talking, you know, like bruschetta, you know, like a little crispy kind of vehicle for lots of beautiful toppings. They're a great party piece, but they're also a really beautiful way of kind of eating slowly and enjoying, you know, big pops of flavor. So I do a little thing at home where I take leftover bread and a baguette would be perfect, but you can use it with a larger loaf. Slice it really thinly, set the oven at 180 degrees, melt a little bit of butter in the microwave, salt and pepper, and then using a pastry brush, just dab very carefully over each little slice of bread or over each little crouton, and then toast it until golden brown for about eight to 10 minutes in the oven. And then if you cool them down, you can actually put them in a container They'll last probably two to three days easy and still be crunchy and fresh. And they're beautiful to put things like buffalo mozzarella, fresh tomato, olive oil, basil. Or you could use, you know, really, I don't know if you've seen them, but very expensive anchovies, for example, that are delicious. I use a a brand called Rivoli, which are lovely. But I also do things like I'll smash broad beans with a little lemon zest, olive oil, parmesan, touch of garlic uh, in a pestle and mortar or in a food processor and just spread that on the top. Use your imagination. Think of every great topping you've ever had on top of a bruschetta and go for it. 
A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.